We have two readings today. The first can be found on the Pew Bibles on page 1224. And it's from 1 John, chapter 1, verse 5, to chapter 2, verse 6. Light and darkness, sin and forgiveness. This is the message we heard, have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And the second reading is on page 1140, and it's from Romans 13, verses 8 to 14. Love fulfills the law. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, 
You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealous and jealousy, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. This is the word of God. As usual, let's start in prayer. Father, we pray that you would help us as we think about what you require and transform us so that we would obey you. Amen. If I were to ask you, should we obey God, how would you respond? I suspect, hope, that most of you would say, of course we should. In fact, at this moment, you might be slightly worried that I'm going to waste the next 25 minutes talking about something so blindingly obvious. Uh, But don't worry, I'm not. We all agree that we should obey God. There are, however, uh, three related important questions that it is worth considering. First of all, why should we obey God? Second, What does obedience involve? And third, what should we do about it? And that's what I'm going to be looking at. Okay, why should we obey God? Again, you might think that that is blindingly obvious. Well, we should obey him because he's God, stupid. And that's not a bad answer, philosophers' agonisings notwithstanding. We should obey him because he's the boss. But we need to go into it a little bit more deeply. First of all, a negative. We should not seek to obey God as a way of atoning for our past wrongdoing, our past sins. I was recently reading a book, and in the middle of it, it talked about John Profumo, the 1960s cabinet minister who resigned following a sex and lies scandal. And the book said that following his resignation, uh, he spent the rest of his life atoning for his sins by charitable work. Well, I hope that he didn't see it like that, because if he did, he was wasting his time. 
As Paul puts it, by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works, lest anyone should boast. That's Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 9. At this point, I should interject that having said that in the earlier service, I spoke to someone afterwards who said, well, actually, they knew John Profumo, and he did indeed repent and turn to Christ afterwards. So I'm pleased to say he understood that point, and I'm really happy to, to, to hear it. You see, what he understood and what we need to understand is that we are accepted by God only by God's grace through what Jesus Christ did on the cross, not through anything that we ourselves do. I hope that most of you here today know that. But there is nonetheless a danger for all of us. And the danger is this. We recognise that having been forgiven by Jesus as a result of what Jesus has done, we need to live Christian lives. We need, in other words, to obey God. We recognise that. But then we subtly slip into believing that if we don't do that, God will reject us. So we come to believe that our salvation does not in fact depend solely on Jesus, but in part on what Jesus has done, and in part on how we behave. And it doesn't. Uh, 1 John, the letter 1 John, from which our first reading was taken, was written to Christians. And the Apostle John recognises that he wants them not to sin. Uh, My dear children, he says, I write this so that you will not sin. But he also recognises that actually they will, or at least they may. And thus he goes on, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus gives forgiveness to us as Christians on an ongoing basis, not merely at the start of our lives as Christians. And that's why in St. John's, week after week, we have confession. We come back to Jesus. We seek forgiveness. We repent and turn to him. That's why, of course, Jesus gave us communion. That's a continual reminder that we are accepted by grace, not through what we do, but through what Jesus has done. And we need constantly to remember that. So let's go back to the question. Why should we obey God? The answer is, in fact, quite simple. It is that if we do otherwise we will be contradicting our profession of repentance and faith. Think about it a moment. When you say, I repent of my sins, what are you actually saying? You're saying, I know, God, that you require my allegiance and my obedience. I recognise that I have failed to give that allegiance and obedience I'm sorry, I was wrong, I commit to give it in the future. Uh, Andy Bezwetherick, who is sitting over there, 
often talks about this matter and he rightly says that repentance involves turning around and he shows us by turning around. Incidentally, have you noticed there's something wrong with Andy's turning around? Because he ends up facing the same direction as he started. Now that has the big advantage that it means he spends the rest of the service, rest of the service talking to all of us rather than talking to the west window. But of course, true repentance involves not ending up facing the same direction as you were before, but turning from a position where we're looking away from God to a position where we are looking towards God. You see, if we say we are repenting and then fail to seek to obey God, how serious are we about our repentance Do you remember when the Pharisees and Sadducees came to John the Baptist? He he said, "Uh, you brood of vipers, produce fruit fruit that comes from repentance. He, He doubted the reality of their repentance. Or imagine two little children, a brother and sister, and they're playing together. And the brother thumps his little sister. She cries and the mother comes running into the room. Immediately the little boy says, sorry, sorry mummy, I won't do it again. And she accepts his apology and goes out of the room. Whereupon he thumps his little sister again. What conclusion do you draw? He wasn't repentant, was he? And it's exactly the same with us. Furthermore, If we fail to seek to obey God, then we have failed to appreciate the seriousness of our rebellion against him and indeed the significance of what Jesus has done for us. Our rebellion is so serious that it required that God give his son to come and die on a cross for us. And God's purpose in doing that was that we would return to him and live the lives he intends for us. The Apostle Peter puts it this way. This is 1 Peter 2.24. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. Why? So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. If we say, Jesus, thank you for dying for me, and then don't seek to obey him, We throw what he's done back in his face. If we really appreciate the significance of what he's done, then we'll be grateful and we will seek to obey him out of gratitude and understanding for what he has done. And incidentally, obeying God's in our own interests. Uh, The psalm that uh, Chris quoted earlier, Psalm 19, makes that point. It's made even more clearly in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 7.23. God says, walk in all the ways that I command you, that it may be well with you. It's in our interests. But more seriously, if we fail to seek to obey God, we are contradicting our profession of repentance and faith. That's why we should seek to obey God. So that's the first question. Second question What does that obedience involve? 
Now, don't worry, I'm not going to try and describe all the requirements of God in this sermon. That would be impossible. I'm just going to focus on the big picture. The Bible contains a number of summaries of God's law. Clearly, the most famous is what Jesus said when he was asked, which is the greatest commandment? I'm sure you'll recall it. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. We're required to love God and love our neighbor. And we need to keep coming back to those two great commands. But but once again, there is a trap into which we can fall as Christians. We can fail to pay attention to what Jesus actually said. We can imagine that Jesus said something like this. Love God, love your neighbour, and you don't need to worry about all the more detailed commandments. Oh, and incidentally, I leave you to define love. But he didn't say that, did he? Now you see, what he was doing is explaining that those two great commandments of love are what link all the other commands together. That we should obey those great commands of love even when there's no more specific command covering our situation. And that as we work out those more specific commands, we should remember that they are examples of what love requires. But the specific commands still apply. And that includes the law set out in the Old Testament the Ten Commandments and that kind of thing. Jesus said that he had not come to abolish the Old Testament law, but to fulfill it. He said, for as long as earth remains, not a jot or tittle from the Old Testament law will pass away. Oh, now, of course, he fulfilled the ceremonial law. We don't need to have a temple anymore. We don't need to have animal sacrifices. Jesus has died And furthermore, there are some laws which are clearly directed at the peculiar circumstances of the ancient Israelites. But the moral law? The moral law hasn't changed and never will change. And we need to obey it. And what about love? Later on in John chapter 1, in 1 John, uh, the apostle says that God is love. God's actions and God's words are manifestations of love. So if we want to understand what love requires, then we need to look at God's actions and what he has said. And that includes looking at his specific commands, because they are examples of what love requires. They need to inform our understanding of love. And so if we discover that our understanding of love conflicts with God's specific commands, then we mustn't dismiss the command we think it conflicts with. Rather, we need to understand that our understanding of love is defective. In this connection, it's really helpful to bear in mind what the Apostle Paul says in our second reading. 
Do you remember, he began by repeating Jesus' teaching about the second great commandment. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfilment of the law. Quite right. But the problem is, very often when Romans chapter 13 is read, the reading ends at that point. But Paul hasn't finished. He goes on. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. You see... The command to love does not abolish all the other commands. Rather, it requires we fulfill them. And that's linked to another point. You see, acting in love involves applying God's truth. I'll say that again. Acting in love involves applying God's truth. Do you remember in our first reading, John says that we should walk in the light. What does he mean by that? Does he mean we should walk in God's truth? We should recognise God's truth, specifically the truth about Jesus Christ? Or does it mean we should act in love? Or does he mean that we should obey the commands of God? Well, If you look at the rest of the first letter of John, and by the way, I strongly recommend you do so afterwards, it's quite short, but if you look at it, you will find he means all three, and he keeps coming back to all three. They cannot be separated. They are completely intertwined, because walking in God's truth requires that we obey the command to love one another. And included within that command is the necessity of obeying the other commands of God. So our obedience of God needs to encompass all three things. That's what obedience involves. Which brings us to the third question. What are we going to do about it? Again, you might think that's obvious. Put simply, we should obey. And that's obviously right. But again, it's just worth going into it in a little more detail. And I'd suggest there are three things we need to do. First, examine ourselves. Second, seek God's help. And third, act. I know that suggesting we should examine ourselves sounds a bit heavy. But that's exactly what the Bible says we should do. Incidentally, have you noticed that it says we should particularly do that before we come to communion? Pity, no nods. 
Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you haven't. We need to examine ourselves, because this is serious. And John has some pretty blunt words to say to us. Whoever says, I know him, that's Jesus, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Now, he is not saying that if we do anything wrong, we're not really Christians or we can't be forgiven by God. No, as I've said earlier, John has already made the point that he knows people who are Christians will continue to do things that are wrong and that Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We can come back to him for forgiveness. In fact, the closer we get to God, the more aware we will be of his purity and our impurity. And we shouldn't be depressed about that. Rather, we should Come back to God, seek his forgiveness, repent, seek his forgiveness, and then move on. No, John isn't talking about that. He's talking about the orientation of our lives. He's talking about what we habitually do. And if we examine ourselves and discover that we do not habitually seek to obey God then we are discovering that our profession of repentance and faith is hollow. This comes back to what I was saying earlier. True repentance and faith manifests itself in action. By their fruit you shall know them, said Jesus. And if we examine ourselves and discover that we're not bearing fruit, then we need to act urgently. And we need to make sure our action is of the right kind. You see, it's terribly easy to end up treating the symptom, not the cause. Imagine for a moment you have a bad foot, and you go to the doctor, and the doctor looks at your foot and gives you some medicine, and says, now look, um, make sure you examine your foot, and if you discover it's a nice, pinky, fleshy colour, everything's fine. But if you notice that it's a yellowy, greeny colour, then you need to act. So you go away, and after a little while, you examine your foot. And to your dismay, it is a ghastly, yucky, greeny, yellowy colour. What do you do? Do you go out and buy some nice, flesh-coloured makeup and put it on your foot? I'm glad you're laughing. You don't, do you? What do you need to do? You need to go back to the doctor. Now, that's not a perfect analogy, but but I hope you can see where I'm going. If we examine ourselves and discover that we are not habitually seeking to obey Christ, then we need to recognise that the biggest problem is with our relationship with God. And we need to turn back to God in repentance, focus on Jesus, seek to put our faith in him. Only when we've dealt with that can we move on to this question of obedience. Treat the cause, not the symptom. And then finally, something for all of us, whatever we discover in our examination. 
we need God's help in this. The bad news is that we can't do this on our own. The good news is that we don't need to. As Paul says in Romans 8, when we become Christians, God gives us his Holy Spirit to work in us, to transform us, to help us obey him. And as we seek to obey, then we need to seek the transformation of God's Holy Spirit. We need to seek his help. So, how should we respond to all of this? What should we do? Well, I'd suggest four things. The first is, we should regularly examine ourselves honestly. Second, according to what we find, we should go back to God, repent, and seek his forgiveness. Third, we should seek the help of the Holy Spirit in obeying God. And then we should seek habitually to give our allegiance to God and obey him. Paul summed it up when writing to the Philippians. This is Philippians chapter 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Let's pray. As a prayer, I'm going to use the first two verses of the song we sang before the, uh, before the sermon. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. Teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Test our thoughts and our attitudes in the radiance of your purity. Cause our faith to rise. Cause our eyes to see your majestic love and authority. Words of power that can never fail. Let their truth prevail over unbelief. Lord, please help us obey you. Amen.